I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, June 11th, 2012. I have no clue how I'm going to get through all the things that need to be discussed this week in a week's time. I'm just saying Big stories out there regarding Creflo Dollar, Ron Jeremy, and other things. So we'll just take it a bite at a time. We'll think of it as a big burrito, and we'll just take a bite off every day. How's that? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is, well, no shortage of crazy things being said and done. Yeah, here's the deal, is that we live in a time when people think that methodology is kind of one of those things that's adiaphora, and you're going, um, I'm not tracking with you there. You said methodology and adiaphora, and I have no clue what you're saying. Can you translate for me? Yeah, sure. Methodology has to do with what we do in church. You think of methodologies, okay? You know, methodologically speaking, we do X, we do Y, we do Z, and the reason why we do X, Y, and Z is because there's methods matter, okay? By the way, there's no such thing as a theologically neutral method. In fact, what you do methodologically in church reveals your theology. Let me give you an example. Okay, I spent many a year early in you know growing up in the Nazarene Church. Okay, and if you're not familiar with Nazarene theology, it's kind of a mixture between Wesleyan holiness and Finneyite, uh, anxious bench, uh, frontier revivalist kind of uh, methodologies. Okay. And so one of the things that was a staple in the church that I attended, well, was the altar call at the end of the service. I mean, you would sit in church and the pastor would open up a biblical text and just lay into you regarding, you know, God's law and how you're not keeping it. And and at the end of it, you would go, ah, you know, you're, you're right. I'm not doing this. Okay. And so what was the solution? Well, the solution was, well, you had to be born again, again, again. 
I'm sorry, this is what I was taught as a Nazarene. So what would happen is, is that you would go up at the altar call to the altar on your knees, weeping, and you would recommit yourself to God and hopefully be born again, again, again. You know, because, you know, you, you, know, you were saved on Sunday and you phoned or caboodled on Monday and lost your salvation. So you'd have to be saved again the following. I mean, this is what it was like in the Nazarene church. It was just absolutely um, miserable to say the least, but terrifying. I mean, absolutely terrifying because, I mean, you'd never have any assurance that there's any hope for you because if you're honest with yourself and you compare your life to God's word and his law, you're going, I ain't making this. I ain't, I, I just, I'm not pulling this off. Okay, so you, there's no assurance because the law always points its bony finger at you and says, do, 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 or don't, 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 don't. And the problem is, is where it says, do, you don't do. Where it says, don't, <laughs> you end up doing. And so is there any hope for you? And and so the any, the point of, of, of this is this, is that the methodology of the anxious bench, the methodology of the altar call, the methodology of the way of of the way things were organized tells you something a lot of something about the theology that's being taught in a particular church so for instance if you believe in monergism okay and that is that this is the biblical teaching that you that all human beings are born dead in trespasses and sins and they are not saved by a decision they make in fact it's quite quite the contrary that uh, no human being can decide for God. They cannot choose God. This is one of the things dead in trespasses and sins, well, prohibits you from doing, okay? Uh, faith is a gift given by God. If you believe that, then you believe that God works through means, and the primary means by which God grants repentance and faith to and regenerates dead sinners is through the preaching of the word. Uh, Romans ten seventeen comes to mind. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So that being the case, then what would happen is, is that that's going to inform, that theology is going to inform your methodology. What you do in a church service or how you go about methodologically uh, engaging in evangelism is going to be informed by that theology. Does that make sense? So the idea is this, is that, <clears throat> now going back to my original statement, <clears throat> methodology is not the, is not adiaphora. Adiaphora means that um, that it's well, it's it's you're free to do whatever you want. Okay, there's no there's no prohibition. There's no there's no rule that says you can't do this or that. Therefore, you're free. You're free in your, in your conscience to basically make a decision for yourself. For instance, okay, let me give an example of something that's truly adiaphora. Okay, does the Bible say that your church's congregation that the wallpaper has to be purple or blue and that the carpet needs to be red, pink, or yellow. It doesn't say, does it? <laughs> no. And so when it comes to church architecture, um, if you, if you, if you might even say, well, where does the Bible require me to have wallpaper? Well, maybe it, it doesn't. So wh whether or not to use wallpaper inside of your congregation, that's Adiaphora. Whether or not to have carpet inside of your congregation, that's Adiaphora. You're free to do whatever you want. Um, you don't want to become divisive, though. I mean, so <laughs> when you make these decisions uh, in your in your elder board or, you know, when you, your congregation comes together for a voters meeting, you want to make sure that that it's done in such a way that you get buy in for everybody and that you, you don't end up, you know, somebody, you know, basically ramrodding. You know, we've got to have wallpaper and it has to be purple and this is the way it's going to be. And then just ramrod. You, you don't want to do that. 
Uh, <clears throat> the point is this, is that there, the Bible doesn't prohibit or prescribe wallpaper. The Bible doesn't prohibit or prescribe carpet. It does it, nothing of the sort. So it, when it comes to what you want to do interior decorating wise inside of your, your church building, it's already offered. You're free to do whatever you want. But here's the deal. Methodologies are being promoted today as if methodology itself is audiophora. We can do whatever we want in church. That's actually not true. Okay? That's actually not true. Church is not a free-for-all, and Scripture itself makes it clear that in the church, uh, the, the church service itself, everything is to be done in an orderly fashion. That, And all of that is informed by Scripture. And there's, there's particular things that are supposed to be taking place when the church gathers. And there's certain things that are prohibited when the church gathers. Believe it or not, there are. Th so methodology is not adiaphora. Okay? So I would say, you know, listen, you could do whatever you want in your church as long as you understand the job of the pastor is to preach the word. You can do whatever you want when you when the church gathers as long as you understand that the preaching and correct teaching of God's word is the primary function of the pastor, that the pastor is to administer the sacraments, that there's supposed to be the Lord's Supper, baptism, prayer, and fellowship. Do whatever you want after that. You're going, okay, um... Yeah, but see, here's the deal. As soon as you understand that biblically, <clears throat> a, a dedication to and a correct exposition of God's word in the apostolic teaching is primary and central. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not negotiable; they are to be, you know, to be there in the church service. Um, prayer and fellowship are also vital components of it. All of a sudden, when you you understand these core things uh, that are laid out in Scripture are these are the these are the things that are to be done because again the job of the church is to disciple the nations right that's what it says in uh, in Matthew 20 to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name Luke 24 so when you understand that the, okay the, the the church is to disciple the nations baptize teach proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins preach the word pray administer the sacraments the lord's supper and baptism and uh, also fellowship is a big deal. All of a sudden, when you understand those are the core things that the church is to really be at, at, at the business of doing, all of a sudden, particular methodologies come into play while other methodologies disappear because they're not compatible with what the church is to be about. Does that make sense? And so when we take a look biblically, methodology is not audiophor. You can't just start tinkering with what the church does without it impacting what the church says, okay? The two are connected. Now, this isn't an exact connection, but I, I in the past I've used this phrase, and I'm going to use it again today, and that's this phrase, lex arendi, lex credendi, okay? And, and it's, it's basically, it's a five dollars that's actually more like a ten dollar theological latin phrase and it means this the law of prayer is the law of belief what you sing what you pray what you is ultimately going to affect what you believe that's the idea and so that being the case this tells us something about well what's appropriate to be singing about in church okay when the church gathers okay so if you look at the history of Christianity then, 
Okay. So what I mean, there are so many bad arguments for these really, really theologically pared down mystical Jesus is my bearded girlfriend kind of Seven uh, Eleven praise songs that pretty much say nothing except for "Ooh, I love Jesus." Ooh, I love Jesus. Okay, historically the church has not done that with its songs. Okay, and, and what it's sung. In fact, if you want to get an idea of what the church has historically sung, I would recommend highly get a copy of the Lutheran Service Book. And you're going, well, I'm not a Lutheran. Trust me, it's it's really edifying. Plus, we're making a lot of these hymns available for you to if you want to be able to sing along with some of these hymns um, over the you know over the next uh, year or so. We're going to be making vast majority of those tunes available for you to sing along to. And what you'll notice is is that when you look at the hymnal and you look at what the church has been singing for millennia, because I mean I've got hymns in here that go back to the fourth century. Okay, when you look at what the church has been singing for millennia, you realize, wow, there's some real doctrinal and theological depth to these hymns. Right. The reason why is because the ancient church has understood that what you sing about, what you pray about, lex orendi, lex credendi, is what you end up believing. And so the idea is, is that it's singing you know the hymns of the of the faith of the historic christian faith were chock full and just brimming brim to you know, well you know you get what i'm saying just packed with deep rich biblical doctrinal theology and you'll notice that a lot of these hymns you can pray them okay they read like prayers and so this this isn't you know this isn't trash this is deep, 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 very rich treasure. But what what happens nowadays? People come along, and go, you know, I don't like, I don't like those hymns. They're boring. I, <laughs> how many verses are you gonna have to sing of that boring, boring hymn? I hate him because it's boring. That's somebody who isn't well catechized. That's somebody who doesn't understand the magnitude, depth, and richness of the treasure that we have. And so that person needs to be instructed in the faith. You know, the, and so, listen, I think there is a good argument to be made by pastors to say, we're not going to go the route of allowing you to sing a lot of these uh, contemporary Christian music songs and praise songs because... You can't, we don't want you believing what's in those songs. Okay, now if you're if you're sitting there going, okay, listen, I understand that, you know, pipe organs, that's kind of medieval European, and you may not necessarily be so hip on the pipe organ. No problemo, the pipe organ isn't inerrant. However, because the doctrines in these hymns say the same thing as the scriptures teach, and this is what we're supposed to be about teaching you, we're going to hang on to these lyrics, and uh, if you want to put them in a more contemporary setting, no problemo. But see, that's the thing. <clears throat> we need to stop making um, arguments against things like hymns based upon subjective and shallow arguments like, those hymns are boring. Okay, I mean, seriously, uh, all of you who have kids, I mean, you've... You've had your children on a summer day, okay, on a summer day, during summer vacation, 
have the audacity to look you, their parent, in the eye and say, Mom, Dad, I'm bored. There's nothing to do. <laughs> right? And how many of you go, oh, you're right, Johnny. There's absolutely nothing for you to do. Whatever shall we do? This is, it's the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, seriously, when my kids would tell me something like that, I would look them dead in the face and go, are you kidding me? Serious. Okay, number one. Okay, this is not what I'm recommending. But number one, we have we have cable television. And on the cable television that we have, we have almost 100 free stations. There's nothing on television? Hmm. Let's go take a look over here and look at our bookshelves. Mm-hmm. Look at all of these books, and I find a classic. Okay, we in, in our library here at my home, we actually have a, a you know an entire section of like the classic, classic novels of all time. And so I pull out a classic and go, "Have you read this yet?" No. Well, here. No, I don't want to read. This is boring. <laughs> now, okay, you want to read that one? Here, how about this one? No. <laughs> All right, so then we go out to the garage, right? And in the garage, what do we find? We got a baseball bat. We got a tennis racket. We've got we've got all kinds of things. Have you considered knocking on the door of neighbors' kids and asking them if they want to play kick the can, hide and seek, maybe a pay, a pickup game of baseball, or how about? Something as simple, you, you get what I'm saying, okay? There's all kinds of things that they could be doing. And then they have the audacity to say, I'm bored. It's right, okay? Listen, when somebody in church says to you, I don't like those apps, they're boring. You need to think of them as a spoiled five-year-old child who needs to be instructed as to what is important and what is not important, rather than catering to them. Because here's the deal. We all know this as parents, those parents who cater to their children, who, I'm born, and <laughs> right? Those those who coddle them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, oh, Johnny, I'm so sorry that you're bored. Oh, what am I going to... And you do that kind of stuff, you, you turn them into monsters, right? And they never grow up. I'm sorry, but... I think it is an accurate way to describe the morass that has become American evangelicalism as I don't think it's off base to say what we're dealing with are a bunch of people who are stuck in a junior high mentality coming to the Christian church and basically saying, I don't like these doctrines. I don't like these. Hymns. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what I need to believe. I just, you know, I want the church to be, you know, to basically give me what I want. That's what they are. They're a bunch of spiritual babies. They're a bunch of spiritual spoiled children. And what have they done? They have gathered for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear rather than doing their biblical duty. And it's time for us to say enough is enough. Okay, that's not church. Those songs aren't Christian. That preaching isn't faithful to what God's word is doing. And these churches, it doesn't matter how many people you have showing up Sunday after Sunday. The biblical church, the, the body of Christ isn't growing through this preaching and teaching and through these songs and all this stuff that you're doing here. In fact, this is these churches have become 
breeding grounds for the worst kind of heresies. Anyway, I just I just want to get that off my chest. So, <clears throat> all right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got an email that I would like to read from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. We've got it's the Creflo Dollar Gate that has to be addressed, and we're going to wade into the waters a little bit, tell you a little bit about what's going on, and point out the fact that there are some huge discrepancies in how this story is being told. On the one hand, you've got what's being reported from the 911 uh, recordings of the, you know, of the 911 call made by Creflo Dollar's daughter, and then what Creflo Dollar says. The two can't be reconciled. So we're going to take a look at the allegations regarding Creflo Dollar's child abuse. He was uh, arrested over the weekend for... Um, allegedly assaulting his uh, his daughter. Um, simple battery is what it's called. There's no such thing as simple battery, is there? Anyway, so it's called simple battery. That's the allegations. That's what he's alleged to have done. And uh, since he hasn't been found guilty in a court of law, we have to talk about it that way. This is what he's alleged to have done. But we're going to point out the fact that there's a big difference between what was said in the 911 tapes, what was corroborated by another one of his daughters and what Creflo Dollar said from the pulpit yesterday. And then we're going to do a little bit of time taking a look at, um, at well, why it is not biblically compatible for you to invite an unrepentant practicing porn king to church. I've laid out a biblical argument today regarding that at my Letter of Mark blog. And you can find it at Letter of Mark. That's L E T T E R O F M A R Q U E dot U S. And um, so uh, let's, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon, which, okay, in case you're new to Fighting for the Faith, when we listen to a, a, a sermon by Pastor Charmley, uh, those those get chalked up to the category of good preaching. Why? Because Pastor Charmley rightly handles God's Word. He spends time making sure that he is a careful exegete, and he tells the stories the way they're meant to be told, and he makes the points that the Scriptures are making. So... You know that I always hold up Pastor Charmley as a as a good example of what biblical preaching sounds like, and it's as far as I'm concerned, it's a plus that he's not from the United States because it shows that that true sound exegesis isn't defined culturally; it's defined biblically. So, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and that requires me to do this. From across the pond, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley has written me an email. The subject reads, Perry Noble is painful. <laughs> and he's uh, responding to, well, a recent segment that I did regarding Perry Noble where he completely biffed it regarding uh, the story of Elijah. Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, just listening to Perry Noble's ignoble Isegetical interpretation of 1 Kings 17. The man has apparently missed the whole point. 
which is that throughout that chapter, Elijah acts in perfect faith. See, you know, the whole thing about, you know, if you remember Perry Noble saying, oh, he was by a brook and it was all dry and he was worried that God was punishing him. No, 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 that's not what was going on. Throughout that entire chapter, Elijah was acting in perfect faith. He know, he does not doubt God at all, even looking to God to raise the uh, the widow's son from the dead, uh, the first such miracle that's recorded in Scripture. Apparently, Noble thinks that Elijah being by the brook is a bad thing. Well, it's only a bad thing for Israel. Elijah has it nice and easy. He gets his food delivered morning and evening and has plenty of water. And then when that runs out, God sends him to the widow of Zarephath who takes care of him. It is Israel who are in trouble because Elijah is the prophet of God. And when God hides him, the prophet, God is taking away his word from Israel. (laughs) Brilliant point exactly elijah wasn't in trouble when the brook dried up it was israel that was in trouble and that's kind of the whole point because when we get to uh, you know to uh, first kings 18 uh, you know what do we find out is that ahab uh he's he's doing everything he can to find elijah you know and they haven't been able to find him anywhere they're trying to find him because remember he's the one that he he has now the power given to him by God to say when the rain's going to come. And and then he disappears, and Elijah, well, Israel, dries up without God's word and without the prophet, right? Anyway, Pastor Charmley says, uh, he continues, he says, uh, Pastor Noble should try reading any decent commentary on the chapter. I don't know if he could do that. There's a lot of big theological words in commentaries. And, I mean, any good theological commentary worth its salt would also have, you know, like Hebrew and Greek and stuff like that in there. And Perry Noble just doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who has the patience and scholastic discipline to labor through a good commentary that would cite things like, Hebrew and Greek and how the church has discussed these, they you know, interpreted this passage in the past, things like that. Anyway, he's reading things into the passage that are just not there. I was particularly annoyed because I just preached on this section. And Pastor Charmley gives me a link to his sermon, which is what we're going to be listening to, by the way, in hour number two. Pastor Charmley continues, says, God was not teaching Elijah that the brook was not his supply. And there's no way on earth that Elijah thought that. One gets the impression that Noble has not actually studied the text. I have my suspicions that he has not really even read it. In the whole chapter, Elijah is depicted as trusting fully in God. I get the impression that Noble had a message and decided to shoehorn it into the text. In the name of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, Pastor Charmley, great email, and thank you. All right, what we're going to do right now is we're going to actually take our first break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, take a look at the news stories uh, that need to be talked about, Creflo Dollar as well as uh, Ron Jeremy's appearance at uh, the Rock Church in San Diego. So you're not going to want to miss that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. All right, we're back. Warning. The job of a pastor requires him to give what people need, not necessarily what they want. Same with parenting, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Click on one of them. Uh, the join our crew you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And, of course, uh, we're in the middle of our, uh, our first, the first leg of our bake sale. Uh, we have about 50 uh, bracelets left. These were made by my mother-in-law. And if you'd like to buy a limited edition Made by my mother-in-law, Pirate Christian Radio bracelet uh, for your wife or for yourself. Uh, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and getting your um, getting your bracelet there, right there. You can purchase it right online. Okay, moving along. Okay, from the, um, the well, actually, this is from the examiner.com, but this is from the uh, Channel 5 News out there in Atlanta. Headline reads, Creflo Dollar's daughter describes altercation in 911 tape, not the first time, she says. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and play this so that you can hear what's going on. If you're not familiar with what's going on, Creflo Dollar over the weekend was arrested for allegedly, um, well, punching and choking his teenage daughter. He has uh, five children. And, uh, and so what we're going to be doing here is comparing what's been said in the in well yeah initially and well apparently what uh, Creflo Dollar is saying now so that you at least brought up to speed because it's kind of like one of the biggest religion stories of the moment so uh, here's the uh, Channel Five I think affiliate out of um, uh, Atlanta reporting here we go. He is the pastor of College Park Megachurch World Changers Ministry. But tonight, Creflo Dollar is accused of attacking his teenage daughter. The fight landed Reverend Dollar in jail overnight. Fox 5's Caitlin Pratt is here now with more. Caitlin. Amanda Russ, in an official statement, the megachurch pastor asked for privacy for his family, but so much has already been made public. The Reverend Creflo Dollar spent most of last night in the Fayette County Jail, locked up on a simple battery charge. The alleged victim, one of his children. 
Fayette County deputies responding here to Mr. Dollar's home early Friday morning after receiving a 911 call for help from his 15-year-old daughter. Fox 5 has obtained that 911 call, but because she is a minor, we've decided not to play it. This, though, is part of what she said. I just got in an altercation with my father. He punched me and frightened me and choked me. It's not the first time it's happened. I feel threatened by being in this house. Deputies say the 50-year-old pastor and his daughter were arguing about whether she could go to a party. The 911 call detailing what allegedly happened next. He went off. That's when he went off. He came and put his arm around my neck and choked me and bent me over the table. And I pushed him off of me and he threw me on the ground and punched me in my face. A deputy taking Dollar into custody after he heard the teen's story and saw marks on her neck. The injuries, of course, were just superficial injuries. Police say 911 calls from children complaining of abuse are common. Anytime we respond, we treat them the exact same way. We, we investigate the facts in the case and we, we have to react accordingly. Preflo Dollar is the pastor of World Changers Ministry in College Park. It has nearly 30,000 members. It's unclear whether he will address the arrest from the pulpit Sunday. In a statement to Fox 5, Creflo Dollar said, quote, as a father, I love my children, and I always have their best interest at heart at all times, and I would never use my hand to ever cause bodily harm to my children. Through social media, he wrote to followers, you must believe you were made righteous, and will stay that way. The arrest sparked outrage from supporters and critics on our own Facebook page. One viewer saying, when I was growing up, our parents whooped our blanks. Now people are calling police? And he was doing what a lot of parents today fail to do. He disciplined his child. Followed by, there is never a situation when it's appropriate to choke your child, period. And Dollar was released from jail on a $5,000 bond. He can live with his daughter, but a judge saying he isn't even allowed to argue with her. From Control A, I'm Caitlin Pratt, Fox 5 News. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you. All right, so that's the uh, the story from Fox 5 News out there in uh, Georgia. And Peyton, I hope you were paying attention. I, I didn't want to interrupt it, but uh, the idea is, is that the 911 tape, which occurred in the moment, the allegation is that he was in an, al he was in an altercation with his daughter. He choked her. This is according to the 911 tape. And according to the 911 tape, um, he punched his daughter in the face, and that's why he was arrested. So all of this, these are the alleged, this is the allegations against Creflo Dollar. So, well, yesterday, Creflo Dollar went to, uh, well, he got up on stage and decided that he was going to uh, address the people of his congregation uh, at World Changers out there in Atlanta, and... Um, and give apparently his side of the story, and it's important for you all note that um, you know at this point, it's pretty clear that the people in his congregation support him, and what he said in his defense. Well, let's just say that there's definitely an incongruent uh, incongruency with what was reported early on and what he said yesterday. So I'm going to let you hear. What Creflo Dollar said, and I'm gonna uh, let is gonna play this in context, and I'm gonna uh, try not to interrupt as much as possible. But I want you to hear this because, 
At this point, it's important if we're going to listen with discernment, notice that there's definitely two versions of the story, two radically different versions of the story. And I would say that some of the things that Creflo Dollar said yesterday don't exactly pass what I would call just the basic sniff test. But listen. It's important to note that uh, while Creflo Dollar is a prosperity heretic, that's quite the suit that he has on, by the way. Amen. He's being treated as a hero, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, when allegations of this type come in with somebody who isn't a prosperity heretic, but your average, ordinary, grassroots pastor, oftentimes the first thing that has to happen is, is that he's required to take a leave of absence while an investigation is conducted to find out what the truth is. Because it's totally possible that his daughter lied about him. It's completely plausible. It's one of the possibilities but when some when literally when somebody's arrested for allegedly choking and punching his daughter he shouldn't be treated with a standing o as if he's somehow you know some kind of battle hero returning from the war i mean don't give him a ticker tape parade we need to go and we need to conduct an investigation to find out what really happened thank you Amen. Well, uh, praise the Lord. I want to, um, I want to first of all. Thank everyone for your prayers for our family. And as everyone knows, raising children in, in our culture, listen, raising children in our culture of disrespect is a challenge and the responsibility for all of us who are parents. As a church family, I want you to hear personally from me that all is well in the dollar household. Like all of us who are parents, there are times when discipline and training our kids can become pretty intense. Now, I have been confessing for years what the Bible says about teaching and training your children, and especially mine. And I believe that there is a powerful destiny and an awesome divine assignment on the inside of each one of my children. 
I know that all five of them are going to do great exploits in the kingdom of God. Okay. As a father, raising five children is going to bring a few challenges along the way. The truth is that a family conversation with our youngest daughter got emotional. And emotions got involved and things escalated from there. The truth is she was not choked. She was not punched. There were not any scratches on her neck, but the only thing on her neck was a prior skin abrasion from eczema. Anything else is an exaggeration and sensationalism. Okay, important to note. If that's true, the exaggeration and sensationalism has its origin not in the media, but his daughter, because the 911 tape reveals that she, in the 911 call, said that she was choked and that she was punched. So let's make it clear. If there's sensationalism going on, the origin of that is not the media. It's his daughter. Help. I mean, I can't imagine. If I punched my kid, it would hurt her. If I choked my kid, you would see visible signs on her neck. But to come and take a picture of a mark that's been there for 10 years and not have enough intelligence to at least ask the parent what it is, is appalling. So apparently at this point he's saying that the police didn't have any intelligence. Notice where he's laying the blame. Again, I would never approach one of my children to intentionally inflict bodily harm. I love my children enough to establish proper boundaries and help them make right choices. Taffy and I have the grace to be loving, responsible parents who teach our children the right things and correct them when they choose incorrectly. And we remain committed to raising our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I will never put any fault on my children, as Jesus would never put any fault on me. I love her with all of my heart. Amen. Yeah, this reminds me of um, uh, Bill Clinton and the Lewinsky scandal. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That's what this reminds me of. This is a political speech to me.
There are two things that are for certain in the life of a Christian parent. Number one is that we win. Number two is that that test will come to try and shake your faith. And I want to say this very emphatically. I should have never been arrested. Hmm. So who's he putting the blame on there? I mean, the police, Yeah, if you've seen the video, then you know that Creflo Dollar lives in a huge mansion. Okay? Huge. And the house itself is behind a gate that's shut. And the house itself isn't even close to the gate. So it's not like, you know, a cop was strolling down the street, you know, waving his baton. And all of a sudden he heard what sounded like an argument and he quickly rushed into the house, you know, to save uh, this, you know, the person who sounded like they were in distress. You get what I'm saying here? Never. And when the facts of this come out, you will be appalled. Thank you so much for your love and your prayers. But you've got, you've got to understand something. It's not as much against me as it is this message of grace. Ah, so now, see, the, see, he should have never been arrested. They, apparently, the police had no good reason whatsoever to believe that a crime had been committed. This was actually the work of the devil to come against the message of God's grace. The devil knows in order to discredit the message, you have to first of all discredit the messenger. Uh, he's a victim here of a satanic conspiracy. I knew it. I'm a human being. And, you know, I, I've had to do a lot of praying, and uh, my family has been very supportive. Because when I feel like an injustice has been done, I'm, I get angry. And yet I respect the law. And so as I begin to pray, the Lord said, I want to deal with you, and he took me to when Paul was going to God and... Mm. So now as part of his explanation, he, he see, he wanted to know why he's going through all this. Why him? I mean, he's such a victim here. Well, don't worry. God has intervened and directly revealed to Creflo what's going on here. I began to beseech God three times that he would take that this, this thing on him three times that he would let it depart from him. And God says, no. 
my grace is sufficient. You see, Creflo Dollar is just like the Apostle Paul. Hmm. In other words, God says, don't ask me to take the trouble away. Ask for the grace that will give you strength when you're weak. And I repented. Oh, God, I see what you're doing. God's not going to take the trouble away from you, but he'll give you grace to strengthen you so at the end of the day, he'll get the glory out of what you were going through. So it's not a satanic conspiracy. This is a God-ordained satanic conspiracy so that God can get the glory after you've been through what you're going through. Hmm. God didn't stop the three Hebrew boys from going through the fiery furnace, but he See, put now, grace on them so when they went... I mean, Creflo Dollar, he's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ah. Through the fiery furnace, they would be able to come out. God didn't stop Daniel from being put in the lion den. See, he's just like Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, just wrongfully... Uh, accused and you know this is just a complete injustice but he's just like daniel in the lion's den but he put grace on him so in the midst of the lion's den the next morning you would see the glory of god that came from the grace of god hmm. i want to close and i'll have nothing else to say about this i want to close in the book of psalms yeah all right you get what i'm saying here so we got, on the one hand, the 911 tapes and the fact that he was arrested, the police arresting him because they believed they had reason to arrest him, that a crime had been committed and he needed to be processed and charged with a crime. Now he's basically saying he's a victim of, a, uh, of some kind of you know, satanic conspiracy, obviously orchestrated by God in order for him to get the glory because he's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's just like Daniel. He's just like the Apostle Paul. And God's been speaking to him the whole time he's been going through this unjust persecution that he's going through, that the devil was trying to discredit him. And by doing that, he can, the devil can discredit the message that he apparently brings. Well, that's quite a show. Um, I'm sorry, but I think there's more to the story here. And just in hearing the two accounts, they're not squaring. Somebody is not speaking the truth. The, the, the two accounts cannot be reconciled. Moving along, from the Letter of Mark blog, this would be my blog, a post that I posted today, June 11th, 2012, the name of it is an unrepentant porn king teaching in the temple of God. An unrepentant porn king teaching in the temple of God. I write, last week the news broke that Miles McPherson of the Rock Church in San Diego had invited unrepentant porn king Ron Jeremy to speak in church. McPherson gave two reasons to justify this invitation. The first is that we can, quote, learn something from Ron Jeremy, and the second is that despite the fact that he's, quote, not a Christian, he's living a sinful life in people's eyes, and his lifestyle's contrary to the Bible, but still, we're obligated to love him. So the reasons given are that we can learn something from him, and we're obligated biblically to love him. 
McPherson's justifications for inviting Jeremy to speak in church demonstrate that he either does not understand what Scripture teaches regarding the gathering of the church or that he's rejected what God has revealed on this matter. In order to understand what God has revealed, we'll consider two passages of Scripture. The first passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20, and it states, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, at first glance, it's very easy to misunderstand this text. When we read in our English translations, do you not know that you are God's temple? Our first impulse is to think that this verse is referring only to individuals in their physical bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 makes that point exactly when it says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20, which I initially quoted, is not referring only to individual humans uh, being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the original Greek bears this out. Now, I'm not going to read the Greek here, but I'm going to point out that the you that is referred to in this text is plural. It's not singular. The you in this text is second person plural, not second person singular. So let me translate this text or retranslate this text using the word y'all. Y'all is what the people down in the southern states in the United States say. When they talk about a group of of yous, they say, hey, y'all, right? So that's the plural here in the United States. Anyway, I'm going to use the word y'all so that you can get the gist of what God has revealed in this text. Do you not know that y'all, or do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. Okay, that's what the text says. It's all the second person plural, not singular. So this passage is referring to both the individual and collective truth that the church is the temple of the living God. Bible commentator Dr. Paul Kretzman, writing about this passage, noted, quote, This is not merely a warning lest any of the readers find themselves sharing the fate of such whose efforts will not stand the test on the last day, but... It is an arraignment of those who become destroyers of God's house, whom therefore, in turn, God will destroy. To bring this out, Paul shows a different side of the picture. Do you not know that a temple of God you all are, and that the Spirit of God lives in you? All Christians being built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles have received the Holy Spirit, the triune God as the tenant of their hearts. Their hearts have become a shrine, a true temple of the Godhead. And the underlying idea is that they all, because of this indwelling together, form the great temple of the invisible church, the habitation of God through the Spirit. If, therefore, any person will corrupt 
defile, desecrate the temple of God, this man God will destroy. If the agitators and false teachers in Corinth, if the errorists of all times will persist in defiling the holy place of the pure temple of God in the individual Christian as well as in the church as such by a perversion of doctrine, by inciting wrangling and strife, then the wrath of God will strike them at last. For the holiness of God can never permit such a defilement to go unpunished. Every injury of that kind is a desecration of the sanctity of the temple. And the added clause, which you all are, reminds the Corinthians of the obligation which is imposed upon them by their sanctity. It urges them to be on a sharp lookout against the defilers of their temple and not to permit the desecration to take place. The work in which they are engaged is a sacred work. They themselves are hallowed and consecrated to God. Therefore, they must watch over their sanctity with a jealous eye. Since there was great danger that some of the Corinthian Christians might have been so thoroughly imbued with the glittering show of human wisdom in the work of the church as not to heed the apostle's warning, he adds another word. No one in their midst should deceive himself. No one should be involved in misapprehension and blindness. No one should presume willfully to know more concerning this matter than the apostle. If anyone among them had the idea that he was wise in the wisdom of this transitory world, he had better become a fool according to the standards of this world, for then only could he become wise in the sight of God. Quote, those who follow human wisdom exalt human masters at the expense of God's glory, and there are teachers who lend themselves to this error and thus build unworthily on the Christian foundation, some who are even destroying under a show of building the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20 clearly and unambiguously teaches that Christians individually and collectively are the temple of God and that God the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst and that God's temple is holy and that God will severely punish anyone who destroys his temple. This is the point where we must consider the second passage. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, and this is a direct cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 20, and it explains what is and is not permitted in God's temple. Here's what God has revealed. Quote, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Again, Dr. Paul Kretzman's commentary on this passage is very helpful and instructive. Said Kretzman, quote, Be not united incongruously with unbelievers. That is the thesis, the topic of the entire passage. If they should be yoked together with unbelievers, it would be an unequal yoking together. The apostle has in mind the provision of the Jewish ceremonial law according to which the yoking together of clean and unclean animals was prohibited. See Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. If the believers, the members of the Christian community, should in any way join with the heathen, in their idol worship, if they should associate with them in such a way as to erase the essential difference between Christian and heathen, then this union would be absurd and wicked, with the peril of leading to denial attached, and should therefore not be practiced by the Christians. The apostle enforces his thought by illustrating the incongruity between Christianity and heathendom in five contrasts. He asks, For what communion, what fellowship is there to righteousness and lawlessness? What have they in common? On the one hand, there is the active disposition to live in accordance with the divine will, and on the other hand, there is no knowledge of the divine, sanctifying will, and therefore nothing but unrighteousness. Obviously, then, there can be no participation between the two. They are contrasts. Or what communion has light with darkness? On the one side is light and salvation with God. On the other is darkness and destruction with Satan. The two can never unite without destroying their substance. The third question, contrasting the Son of God with the adversary of himself and all of mankind. But what is Christ's concord with Belial? How can there ever be an agreement between Christ the champion of that which is right and good, which is intended for man's salvation, and the chief of Christ's adversaries. The personification of righteousness and perfection against the personification of unrighteousness and lawlessness. That abyss can never be bridged. I continue. Now that we have a firm understanding of what God has revealed in his word with regarding what is appropriate and inappropriate in the temple where his Holy Spirit dwells, that would be in our midst as Christians, ask yourself this question. Is inviting an unrepentant and practicing porn king to speak in the church, that is the temple of the living God, in accord with what the Holy Spirit has revealed and commanded in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 20, and 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, or is it the equivalent of uniting light with darkness or Christ with Belial? Or more to the point, how is this not a desecration of the temple of God? Listen. Um, there are a lot of people who are watching this that are, that are th- hopefully thinking about someone they know that doesn't know God, that God is calling them to go love and, and go encourage. And based on what you've learned from your relationship with Craig, I mean, we've known each other a little bit, and all the other pastors, what would you tell them and how they can better love those people who, who, who are far from God? Now, now that's miles mcpherson asking the unrepentant practicing porn king ron jeremy how christians can love non-christians stop 
on its face, does an unrepentant practicing porn king have any godly advice to offer Christ's church? Answer, not that I can see. Why would I go to a porn king for godly advice or to give me specifics on how I am to obey God's command to love my neighbor? What would an unrepentant practicing porn king have to offer the temple of God? Listen to the answer. That's a big one. Uh, be your, I'd say, first of all, be yourself. Uh, oh, there you go. Yeah, there's great advice there. Be hypocritical. Because so many people come at you with an attitude or, or maybe even a, a good attitude, but then they get caught in scandals. It happens so much. I mean, if you're not going to live the life. Okay, now notice what he's saying here. He, his, he, he, his rudimentary understanding of Christianity is basically all law. Where's the gospel? He has a, a relationship with porn pastor Goss, right? He has for years. I don't know what a porn pastor is, but that's what you know how uh, Craig Gross, uh, Goss uh, portrays himself. And when he thinks of Christianity, the only thing he can think about is moralism. But biblical Christianity, the gospel says that all are sinners. All, all are sinners. None is righteous. No, not one. Together they are all worthless. No one seeks after God, right? This is what Scripture says. Read Romans 3 if you're confused. And that we are justified or declared righteous by Christ's shed blood on the cross and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. So, Ron, Jeremy, what's the advice that you can give? Can you give us Christians advice on how to love you the way God wants us to? Oh, sure. Just don't be hypocritical. This is just rank moralism, and it shows that he doesn't even understand the gospel at all. Has he been told it? Have they loved Ron Jeremy enough to tell them of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross? If you walk the walk, then you really shouldn't be criticizing or giving advice. You know, so I would say if to, how to love these people is show them how well, all the great things it's done for you, as it has done to you and done for him. Mm -hmm. And just be real. And the, the, the biggest pain I, I, I find is hypocrisy, because I've been through it for, for the last 30 years. People who criticize, and they get caught in their own scandals, you know, mm -hmm. even worse ones than, you know, making movies. So just to be, uh, the best way I'd say is to be yourself, show how the Lord has helped your life, mm -hmm. and try to set an example and not be hypocritical. Yeah, so it all depends on you. Just set an example. Well, the problem is, is that every Christian, me included, we're still sinners. And it shows that he hasn't heard the gospel. The gospel is not walk the walk. The gospel is you are guilty and Christ died for your sins. Repent and be forgiven. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And, there, and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And you're not going to do that perfectly here. All Christians must, when they think about sin, begin by thinking of themselves first. None of us keeps God's law perfectly. And the fact that Ron Jeremy, when he thinks of Christians, the only thing he can think about is hypocrisy, basically tells me he's just basically run into a bunch of people who scream the, the law at him but don't really have an understanding of the gospel. How can we say that we've loved Ron Jeremy as Christians if we haven't told him of the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ?
and his death on the cross. How on earth is this not a desecration of God's temple? By asking somebody who is at war with God. Somebody who is literally at war with God. How how can we best obey God's command to love you? Give us the advice on how to be godly from a man whose entire life and career is marked by nothing but flagrant sin. Christ died for Ron Jeremy. Scripture makes that clear. But has he been told that? Does he even understand that? Does he even get that that's the gospel in Christianity? I'm sorry, but what happened at the Rock Church in San Diego was a desecration of God's temple and a very hateful and unloving thing to do to a man who at this moment is still heading to hell. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. we got a good sermon for you this afternoon. Don't want to miss it. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hey, 
Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted, feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen, and I use my Bamboo Stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day -day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. I've opted for a good one. In light of Pastor Charmley's relevant, timely email regarding Perry Noble. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The text for the sermon is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. The name of the sermon is The God Who Is. This is from his sermon series entitled, The King Who Is Coming. And let me just put it this way. I don't think Pastor Charlie would have appreciated it, but I should have done a sermon cage fight with him. <laughs> he would have, yeah, between him and Perry Noble, you know, Pastor Charmley versus Perry Noble on this text, it would have been like a sumo wrestler versus a three-year-old. That's all I'm saying. You're going to enjoy the sermon. Notice that he begins in the text, that he exegetes the text, that the points that he draws out from the text are in the text. And he correctly shows what's really going on. He doesn't allegorize the dry brook as a dry and lonely place in your life. Nothing of the sort. Ha! Anyway, let me um, fill the music. So without any further ado... Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in his sermon entitled, The God Who Is. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the first book of Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. 
1 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 16. And this follows on from the beginning of the reign of King Ahab, who was so wicked. It was a light thing, a trivial thing for him to walk in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And he married a pagan princess, Jezebel of Tyre, of Sidon, and adopted the worship of her pagan god, her idol, Baal. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Kerith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and stayed by the brook Kerith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, let you not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring, me, bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. And we trust God to add his blessing to the reading of his most holy word. Now, God is. That is the great declaration of the scripture. The scripture does not begin by seeking to demonstrate the existence of God. It begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We begin with the fact that God is. And we know that God is because he is and he acts and he is not silent. The God who is is the God who rules over all. The God who does all things. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He is the God who is the God who acts. And here we have suddenly in the Midst of all this apostasy in Israel, Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, 
of the inhabitants of Gilead, or, as it may also be translated, of Tishbe in Gilead. That is, of course, to distinguish it from another Tishbe that was in Galilee. Elijah, a Tishbite. Suddenly he appears, and his, his very name is significant. His name means, my God is Yahweh. My God is the God of Israel. And here he is in the midst of this apostasy when this foreign worship has been introduced into Israel. And he says by his very name, my God is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the only God. None but he. Elijah is a man who is full of assurance. He is a man who never doubts God. Now later on he doubts himself. But he never doubts God. He is a man who is assured that God is. And he is not silent. That he is. And he is active. And of course it follows from him knowing the true God. That he knows that Baal is not God. He is not a pagan. Who believes that there are many many gods. But he is assured there is one God. And Baal is not God. And yet, in a sense, there is this combat. This combat that, perhaps in some way, is, is rather humorous. Because it is the combat between the God who is and the God who is not. And so the outcome is never in any doubt. Baal, because he doesn't exist, can do nothing. God is, and he acts. And yet, of course, there are all these people who believe that Baal does exist. And the aim, the end of the combat, the aim, the end of this conflict of the gods, is that Baal is going to be shown to be no god, not even to exist, and his followers are to be put to shame. And so here we have the beginning of this combat. We have a sure promise of God, the strange provision of God, and the settled persuasion of God's people. So we have first the sure promise of God. God has spoken. He is not silent. And Elijah, of course, is a prophet. Now the, the word prophet, the word translated prophet, is a little bit obscure. We're not entirely sure what its original meaning is, but its meaning in context is quite obvious. The prophet is somebody who speaks for God. He is a man who has a word from the Lord. That's why you have such a thing as a false prophet, who's a man who says he's got a word from the Lord and hasn't. But a true prophet is a man who has a word from the Lord. And Elijah is just such a man. He speaks for God. He is God's spokesman to King Ahab and to the people of Israel. God vindicates himself. God comes with this word, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at the word of Elijah. Which of course is the word that Elijah receives from God anyway. So there's a word from the Lord and then a word from the Lord comes to Elijah telling him to go and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kerith. God vindicates himself. He comes to apostate Israel who are treating him as if he is simply like Baal, another God who doesn't exist, an idol. He comes to apostate Israel with a word. 
in the mouth of Elijah, and the word is a word of vindication, and a word that startles. Suddenly God is speaking. It has been many chapters, many years, many kings, since a word came from the Lord to Israel. But now, God speaks. And he speaks with this word of vindication, I will stop the rain. Now Baal was a fertility god. A god who was supposed, according to his followers, to bring the rain. He was the god of the storms. A god who brought rain on the earth. And here is the God of Israel saying, no, I am the God who brings rain on the earth. Yahweh says, the rain is mine to give, not Baal's. Baal can give nothing. And I will prove it. And he proves it by stopping the rain and showing once and for all the utter impotence of Baal. Baal has no power. Baal has no might. Baal is over absolutely nothing. And God here is simply fulfilling and answering a prophecy. A promise that he had himself made a threat. But it's a promise nonetheless. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 16. God says, take heed to yourselves. Lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens, so there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. See, God has said, if you turn aside and worship other gods, you will suffer this. And his sure promise, in this case a sure promise of judgment, is fulfilled. And the sign is very telling. You see, we've experienced recently, have we not, how unpredictable our climate is. How one week you can have snow and the very next blazing sunshine. You may have seen, as I have, the pictures on the internet, uh, one week apart and you have one week train going through a snowy landscape and the next week the train going through blazing sunshine and high temperatures that's our climate but Israel is not like that the land of Israel has a very predictable climate the former rains, the latter rains these two rainy seasons a dry season in the middle and you can predict within a few days within a few weeks when the rain will come And if the rain doesn't come, there's something up. And if the rain doesn't come year after year after year, something has happened. Now indeed, this is... These are tough measures. If without the rain, the crops do not grow. Without the rain... The flocks and the herds will suffer. Without rain, indeed, there will be death in the land. But you see, without God, 
Without God there is death. To live without God is to be dead while you live. So it is. But God in some ways is kind when he brings such a judgment. God's worst judgment is when he says let them alone. The worst judgment is when God stops judging. When God does nothing and leaves the apostate to perish in his sin. But by bringing this terrible judgment, he wakes them up. He says, awake. For I am God. Awake and turn back to me in this stern mercy. And after all, if men live and go on depending on Baal, what are they depending on? They're depending upon an illusion. A lie, because Baal does not exist. They are being called by this tragedy to wake up. It is not how our Lord interpreted the, the judgments. The Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, the falling of the Tower of Siloam, I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. There's a call to repentance from the false, from the lie that is Baal, to the real, the truth, who is Jehovah, Yahweh. God alone can save. And so there is this sure promise of judgment. But then the strange provision. Elijah is told, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Terith, which flows into the Jordan. Now knowing what we find out Elijah later on, God has to tell him to hide himself because otherwise Elijah would not hide himself. Elijah was the kind of man who, because he was zealous for God, would ever have been confronting and he would have put himself in danger for God. Because Ahab being Ahab, and particularly Jezebel being Jezebel, they would have wanted to hunt him down and to force him to make it rain. And he couldn't. But that, of course, is not how a pagan thinks. A pagan thinks you can force the rain, you can force the prophet. It's magic in the eyes of a pagan. And so Elijah is told to hide himself. First of all, for his own safety. Secondly, as a judgment against Israel. For Elijah is the word of God. Elijah, as God's prophet, is the word of God. And it's vital to see him as that. He's not just a believer. He's the word of God. And if he's hiding himself, then the word of God is being taken away from the nation. And they have not got the word of God. And there is a judgment. They despise the word. Therefore God takes the word. That they may learn to value the word. So Elijah is taken. And told to hide himself. By the book. Kareth. And oh what a blessing it was for him. There is here no. Lack of faith on the part of Elijah. No Elijah is a man of faith. There is here no doubt on the part of Elijah, no anxiousness 
but he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's all we're told. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. God spoke, he obeyed. Quite the opposite of Israel. Israel was told to do that which was fundamentally reasonable. To follow the God who had brought them out of Egypt, who had redeemed them, brought them from slavery, and who had brought them into the land. That is fundamentally reasonable. Elijah is asked to do something that is fundamentally unreasonable. To expect carrion birds, scavengers, ravens to bring food to him. The nature of a raven is if a raven faces, if a raven has food in front of it, the raven will eat it. It will not drop it to feed a prophet. So Israel is asked to do something rational and disobeys. Elijah is asked to do something completely irrational, humanly speaking, to expect ravens to feed him, and he obeys. Again, judgment on Israel. Israel does not do what Israel is called to do. Elijah does what Elijah is called to do. And his obedience is a judgment upon them. God provides in a surprising way. And you and I, we look, and we are not Elijah, but we too have a surprising provision. And that surprising provision is the cross. It is fundamentally, on a human level, unreasonable to think that a dying man can give life. That the cross is the source of life. And yet it is. It is fundamentally to a human unreasonable that men should glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why you have that objection that some people make to those who may wear a cross on the lapel. Well, just said, if your best friend was executed on the electric chair, would you wear an electric chair? Ah, but you failed to see the point with that objection, for Christ died for our sins on the cross. That cross gives us life. Paul says, let may it never be that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. We rejoice in the cross because the cross is our provision. That strange provision, yes, of life through death. A strange provision of our God. Surprising provision of our God. And there is Elijah. And oh, what a blessing it must have been to be by the brook with God. To be there in fellowship with Yahweh. We are not to think of him as being there idle and fretting and worrying. But there in great joy. A man with God. The man of God with his God. In fellowship sweet. 
in communion. We do not know what happened by that book, but we know the man of God was there with his God. But of course, as the, the drought goes on, the brook dwindles down and down and down until one day there is not even a trickle of water in the bottom. And then the word of the Lord came to to him, to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. A widow. Again, a strange provision, because in that age, in the ancient world, if you wanted to think of a person who was helpless and destitute, it was a widow. Most widows were helpless because, and again, not to say that this is how the world ought to be or ought to have been, but how the world was, it was a patriarchal society. Women, there were very few roles for women beyond that of a wife and the mother, which is absolutely vital. But it meant that a woman who wasn't married, a woman who had lost her husband and had to bring up children on her own, would find it very difficult to provide because there were very few roles that she could do, that she could work in the culture. And so here is this woman, the picture of poverty and need. True religion is to visit the widow and the fatherless. The widow has to be provided for. And here is God says to Elijah, I provide a widow to provide for you. And again, unbelief would say at this point, a widow? And Elijah says, God has said it. I believe it. And so to Zarephath I will go. You see, God's provision is indeed like that. Men look and they say, how can you trust in a crucified God? And they mock and they laugh. Oh, we know better. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for you. And our life we derived day by day from that blessed death. A widow. A widow in Zarephath. Zarephath which belongs to Sidon. Jezebel came from Sidon. Baal came from Sidon. Zarephath is in Baal's territory. And ah, you see, Elijah knows this, because Elijah knows God. Yahweh is about to prove that while Baal is helpless in his territory, in Israel, Yahweh is powerful everywhere. Baal can do nothing anywhere. God can do anything Anywhere. Because the God who is is the God of the whole earth. People, of course, in, those age, in that age, the pagans, thought of gods very often as territorial. So if an, Israel, if a, an Egyptian met a Sidonian, 
then the Sidonian and the Egyptian they didn't say that the other's gods didn't exist. In fact, there were some cases where the Egyptians adopted gods from the Sidonians and the Canaanites, and the other way around. No, but the Egyptians said, well, our gods are the gods of Egypt, and the Sidonians said, well, our gods are the gods of Sidon. So gods were seen quite often as territorial. And so here is Yahweh saying, I'm not a territorial god, I'm the god of the whole earth. And Baal is not a territorial god. He's an idol. He doesn't exist. God is powerful everywhere. And Baal is powerless everywhere. Because Baal doesn't exist. And Yahweh does. And then we have finally the settled persuasion. We have faith. Elijah is first and foremost a man of faith. A man who trusted God's word. I would say verse 5 sums up Elijah. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's how Elijah lived. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. Because faith is simply this. Faith is simply taking God at his word. It's trusting God. And if you trust somebody, you take him at his word. What God has said, he means. What God has said, we are to trust. Because we trust him rather than questioning him and saying, well, Lord, how will this be? There's nothing necessarily wrong with saying, how will this be? After all, Mary, the mother of our Lord, the Virgin Mary says... When the angel comes, well, how will this be, seeing I do not know a man? Seeing I am still a virgin, how, how shall I have a child? Now, there is a reason there. But you see, finally, we trust God, because we know who he is. However strange his word, however strange the provision However strange the man hanging on a tree, bearing our sins, may be yet, faith says, Behold your God, O Israel. Behold your God, O earth. Faith believes and takes the word. Now, of course, to us, the word is the Bible. It is not some inward impression Many people have gone astray following inward impressions, following their feelings. So often, so often, people have thought that they had a word for the Lord. It turned out to be their own desires. Their own deep desire that such a thing would be. And then they suppose that that is a prophecy. God has told me, no, you wish it to be. Now, God has spoken in his word. God has spoken in Christ Jesus. God, who in time past spoke to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. Christ is to us the final revelation of God. Christ is the final revelation of God until he comes again in glory. Until we are brought into his kingdom in its fullness. Christ is the final revelation of God. And so we are not to look for new and future revelations. 
We have the revelation that is given. We have the Son who is given. Who shows us the love of God. The Father's heart. We trust that which is sure and certain. Not that which is uncertain. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. The word of God is certain. The words of men. Uncertain we do not know. After all. Unless we have a short and certain word from God, that impression may very well be simply our overactive imagination. The impression of impending doom may be merely depression. The impression that there will be a great revival may be our deep desire that there should be such a revival. But all this is uncertain. God has spoken. And we know, and we are certain, of what he has said. So we trust God's word. And so Elijah, whatever God says to him, he does it. He goes hither and thither. However surprising. And so if God says to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, we do it. If God says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you, we do it. If God says we live by faith in the Son of God, we live by faith in the Son of God. We simply take him at his word. Not because our faith earns us any favour with God, but because God is worthy to be taken at his word. Because he is faithful who was promised. And so Elijah knew, and so Elijah trusted. Whatever God said, however strange it was, he believed it. And then we have the widow's faith. Now the widow is living in a pagan nation. She may or may not be a follower of Yahweh at this time. It's hard to tell. And the commentators are divided on the point, as they often are when something is hard to tell. But she believes she has the word of God in Elijah. No other word to her. She hasn't got a, a Bible, a Torah, or any other part of the scriptures. She has Elijah, who speaks to her the word of God. And here she is in her desperate condition, ready to make the last meal and then they will just die. And that's it. Humanly speaking, it's all over for her. But then God comes. And God says. Do this. And she does it. God says. Give your provision. All that which you're trusting in. And all that which you know. Is only temporary. Give it all. Give of it to Elijah. And she doesn't complain, she doesn't grumble. She does say, look, I'm sorry, verse 12, I don't have any bread. This is all I've got. An apology to say, well, I haven't got anything, really. But Elijah says, go and make a small cake from it. 
bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord your God, the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, again, humanly speaking, this woman's living in Baal country. Miracles don't happen in Baal country. Baal can't do this. Baal can't provide. Baal's the god of plenty, isn't he? But she merely hears this word of God and she goes and does it. Gives up everything. Or rather, she ventures everything in faith. As Joseph Hart puts it, venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners God. And so she trusts the word and receives provision. What does she receive? Day by day provision. For you see, faith is not just the beginning of the Christian life. Faith is the whole thing, the life, the walk, the triumph of faith. Day by day, trusting in him for, his, for our daily bread, our daily provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's simply what this widow does, trusts for her daily bread on the Lord. And of course she is not disappointed. She is provided for day by day the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith in the New Testament is not something in the past for the Christian. It's something that is daily. We are daily on his grace relying Daily looking unto Jesus, daily going on, daily trusting, daily receiving of him, daily feeding on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Daily, daily we receive of him. Faith, you see, for the Christian has a beginning but no ending. We go on by faith. That's why we talk about Christians as believers. Because belief is what characterizes the Christian. Ever trusting day by day. And so then we see that there is only one living God. Only one God who is Yahweh. I am who I am. Only one God who is and therefore only one whom we can trust. All his promises are sure and certain because he lives forever and he is over all. And all of those promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. They are all given freely in Christ. And whosoever will may come. All his promises are sure and certain in Christ Jesus. And all who are in Christ may indeed say with Elijah, My God is Yahweh. My God is Jesus. Whatever God anyone else may have. Again, if I may, cite, may quote Joseph Hart, one of his wonderful hymns, he, he ends, Long time I 
after idols ran, but now my God's a martyred man. My God is Jesus. He is a God who speaks, because he is a God who is. He speaks. And we hear. He speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. He speaks. He alone provides. He is the one who strangely provides all our needs in the crucified man of Nazareth. Crucified, risen, ascended into heaven. He strangely provides all our needs by the cross. By the cross. And so we come to the Lord's table. So we must have the Lord's table. Because our, all our needs are provided in the cross. In that body broken and that blood poured forth. We come to Jesus. Not merely as the God-man, but the crucified God-man. Our strange provision indeed. And we are called to trust. To have that settled persuasion that is based upon the very nature and fact of God himself. It is based upon the sure and certain word of God. We know love here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We are called to trust him because he is our provider, because he loves us. We are called to trust him. Day by day, to go on looking unto Jesus, and as Elijah, to live by faith. As the woman, the widow of Zarephath, to live by faith. Only trust him. And he cannot disappoint, because he is. And is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and find that after all we sought him because he first sought us. That we had we depended in all, more than we ever knew, on the grace of God, that is, forevermore, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So we trust him, we trust him, we look to him, and we walk in the light of the God who is, and who is God with us, in his Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. Amen. Mm. So do you see the difference? The difference between rightly handling God's word and preaching the biblical text and preaching Christ, even from the Old Testament, is the difference between night and day, light and darkness, or Christ and Belial. What would you rather have on a Sunday morning? A pastor who's rightly teaching God's word, correctly handling it, properly distinguishing between law and gospel and preaching Jesus even from the Old Testament, or an interview with an unrepentant porn star, giving advice on how we can fulfill God's command to love our neighbor. You see what I'm saying? Big difference. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. 
Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.